Hello, welcome back to The Horrors. Hi, I'm Elise. I'm Shay. Here we are, episode 106. We're here with a sleepover movie. That is what I've been told. <laughs> I can say I've never watched this at a sleepover, um, or at least one that I've been present at. This is Disturbia from 2007. Yeah, we just recently brought this up in one of our other episodes, and we figured, why the fuck not? <laughs> I can't believe this movie was as popular as I guess it turned out to be. Yeah! <laughs> I mean, I'm, for me, but you know what? If I was a kid and I was watching this, you know what? I feel like if I watched this when it came out, maybe I would have had an experience with it like I had with When a Stranger Calls. That's what I've been hearing because I was just talking to a friend about this recently and she was saying how it's so nostalgic for her. And I think mm. that's why she likes it so much because I remember watching this with fresh eyes and being like, did we watch the same fucking thing? <laughs> <laughs> but I think like it is so 2007 and we just covered Halloween 2007, which I think is 2007 in like the most obnoxious, offensive way. And this <laughs> is the most 2007 in the most cringe way. Mm. Yes, it's very cringe. But cringe today in a way that I don't think it was meant to be cringe. No. No. I don't think it was. This was I, meant to be a romance. <laughs> yes. It was meant to be very cool. And you'll hear us mention this. It evokes a lot of similar tropes as Idle Hands, which we covered in our First Times episode way, 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 way back when. Lots of fun nostalgic trends here. But let's get into it. So we have our ladies, starting with Sarah Romer. She plays our leading lady, Ashley Carlson. Sarah Romer is an American actress and model. She is best known for this role, but she starred in several films, including Asylum from 2008 and Fired Up from 2009, as well as a few television series. Do you remember Fired Up? Is that like a cheerleading show? Yes. I'm seeing it in my head, but like, I don't think I ever watched it. Oh my gosh. It's these two football bros who are so obsessed with girls that they decide to be cheerleaders so they can go to cheer camp and try to hook up with many girls as possible. Wow. Like it's kind of the era of John Tucker must die. Oh yeah. Like it's that kind of thing. Next we have Carrie Ann Moss as Julie Brecht. She's a Canadian actress. She rose to international prominence for her role of Trinity in the Matrix series. And she has also starred in Memento from 2000, for which she won a bunch of awards, Unthinkable from 2010, and Silent Hill Revelation 2012, and many other film and TV shows. And then the star of the show, who actually really isn't a star in this movie. <laughs> Listen to me. When I saw this woman on screen, I I cannot express to you how happy I was. This is like when Danny Glover was in Saw. Wait, yeah, literally. Viola motherfucking Davis as the smallest role detective Parker. I wrote, what a get. Let me read you this excerpt from her Wikipedia page. This is obviously before she rose to incredible fame, but for those of you who don't know, Davis is an American actress and producer. She is one of the few performers that have been awarded an Emmy, a Grammy, an Oscar, and a Tony, aka an EGOT. Additionally, she is the sole African-American to achieve the triple crown of acting, which we just talked about in our Exorcist episode about Ellen Burstyn as well as the third person to achieve both statuses. So only two people before her have gotten the triple crown of acting and the EGOT status. She is the third person ever in history. <laughs> and Time Magazine named her one of the 100 most influential people in the world in 2012 and 2017. And in 2020, the New York Times ranked her ninth on its list of greatest actors of the 21st century. And in this movie, she's here to put an ankle monitor on Shia LaBeouf. 
What a delightful treat to see Viola Davis. And again, also before her incredible fame, oh, I just, I watched her and I couldn't help but think, oh, Viola Davis, you don't even know what you're about to accomplish. But she is amazing. I was so happy to see her here. I wonder if she gets like residual checks from this movie and is like, ah, you know, there's coffee or whatever. Well, this movie was actually kind of like a bigger deal as far as its production goes than I realized. Mm. So a little bit of pre-plot trivia. Steven Spielberg was an executive producer for this film. This was also directed by DJ Caruso and written by Christopher Landon and Carl Ellsworth. Landon is most well known for his work on Freaky from 2020, which Shay and I have talked about doing, I don't think on the podcast, but just behind the scenes. Paranormal Activity, the marked ones from 2014. Which is my favorite paranormal activity, just so you know. Yes, it is indeed. And We Have a Ghost from 2023. Then Ellsworth, the other writer, is most well known for Unhinged in 2020 and The Last House on the Left in 2009. Also with Christopher Landon, he was involved in Happy Death Day. And he is set to direct Scream 7. Oh my, I knew. I feel like I was looking at his accolades and I was like, why do I feel like we just talked about this on an episode? Yeah, I think it was Happy Death Day probably. Uh Uh-huh. Because I remember saying that I'm really glad that Christopher Landon learned how to write women a little bit better since this movie. (laughs) Holy shit. Yeah, and we are definitely going to get into that because there's some crazy women in here. There's something They have no emotions other than to evoke lust. Okay. Also, this movie had a $20 million budget, but it made $118.1 million at the box office. They ate it up. They did. They ate it up. And the copyright holders of Cornell Woolrich's short story, It Had to Be Murder, which Rear Window from 1954, which is an Alfred Hitchcock movie, was based on, sued DreamWorks, Paramount Pictures, and Steven Spielberg for using their story without permission. But the case was dismissed because apparently, and this is, again, according to Wikipedia, the subplot or subplots of Disturbia were too intricate to match the short story. Which kind of makes sense because short stories, you know, they don't really, they're short, so they don't have a ton of subplots going on. But I thought that was interesting. I loved a little bit of legal drama there. The movie was originally rated R, but was re-rated PG-13 on appeal, which I am surprised that this movie was ever considered for an R. I mean, maybe the ending scene gets a little bit graphic, but at the same time, the whole movie, it feels so... Tame. Yes. And the title Disturbia is a play on the words Disturb and Suburbia. Now I know what you're thinking. (laughs) (laughs) There's only one other Disturbia that I think has everyone's hearts. And that is by Rihanna. One year later, Rihanna recorded the hit horror pop song Disturbia, which maybe was inspired by this movie. Who knows? To me, Disturbia, and this is probably because I'm thinking of the Rihanna song, is such like a sexy word that I was so surprised by how tame this movie was. But it came out before her song, which I think makes more sense. And now that I see the play on words, Disturb and Suburbia, I guess that makes a little bit more sense too. Rihanna reclaimed it for us all. Yes. And I love the association that I have now to her song. I love Disturbia. I mean, I think uh, everyone remembers Disturbia and where they were when they heard it first. No, I'm just kidding. I don't remember (laughs) that, but I kind of wish I do. Okay, so let's get into this one-of-a-kind flick. So we open with Shia LaBeouf fishing with his dad. And if you're wondering what Shia LaBeouf's name is. (laughs) You're never going to guess. You're never going to (laughs) guess. Is it Romaine? It's not quite Romaine. Is it Iceberg? 
a little bit more of a darker green. Spring mix. No. Nope. That's got some purple in there. Tell me what it is. It's Kale. His name is Kale. (laughs) His boy's name is fucking Kale. Which honestly, I feel like started to become trendy after 2007. So maybe he's a little bit ahead of his time. Yeah, maybe. (laughs) Or maybe he's just a leafy green. Maybe he's smoking some leafy green. Maybe. I was surprised we didn't see any of that, honestly, with somebody who was uh, in his position. But anyway, we're getting pure as fuck vibes and bonding between him and his dad. They seem to have a great family relationship. So we know something bad is about to happen. Ugh, I hate it. So they are driving away from their fishing trip. Kale is driving and they're both on the phone with Kale's mother saying that they're, you know, going to stop on the way home. They'll be home soon. But cue some careless driving on Kale's part. And there is not one, but two car accidents Mm -hmm. that occur in a very short span of time. And dad doesn't make it. We immediately cut to the next scene, which is at school. Kale is in Spanish class. So we're not sure how much time has passed. Probably a year or at least the school year. And he's kind of nodding off. But we also see someone (laughs) giving a presentation. A Casas presentation. (laughs) (laughs) So it's, yeah, this is a Spanish class. Later, we're introduced to this character as Ronnie. He's a good friend of Kale's. But to us, this is our introduction scene to Ronnie. He's giving a speech in Spanish class, but he keeps saying the word quizás, which means perhaps, but it sounds like kiss ass. So he's saying quizás before everything he says. The class is roaring with laughter. It's such a good introduction scene to this character. I feel like I love this scene. It's so lighthearted. And of course, I think on the tale of what the opening scene was, this is some much needed comedic relief. But after Ronnie sits down, it's Kale's turn. But as he's asked to go up front to give his presentation, I guess on what he plans to do that summer, he is not ready at all. He seems like he was barely paying attention even to Ronnie's iconic presentation. The teacher asks him, did you not do your homework? And he says, I guess not. And the teacher asks Kale, what would your father think? Okay, yeah, this teacher takes his job way too fucking seriously. No teacher, like, I'm sorry. (laughs) But that is so unrealistic, especially because that teacher clearly knew because of the pointed remark that Kale's father had died. No one's going to say that to a kid. That's insane. And he's like getting in his face and everything like that. Mr. Gutierrez and Kale punches him in the face (laughs) multiple times. I'm like, he deserved it. He totally deserved it. Listen, classroom violence aside, whatever, we know it's a problem. He deserved to get hit. Cut to the next scene. Yeah. Kale is obviously in the principal's office. He's in juvie court. (laughs) Yeah, you're right. (laughs) He's in court. He's a couple months shy of his 18th birthday, so he's charged as a minor. Well, he could have been given a harsher sentence, like literal juvenile detention time, but the judge takes sympathy on him because of his circumstances and gives him three months of house arrest over his summer. I hope the teacher got us stern talking to as well about what is inappropriate to say to students in front of their entire class. You shouldn't punch people, but look, for the sake of this movie and how it's playing out, I could see how one thing led to the next. (laughs) Let me put it that way. So cut to the next scene. Here she is. Kale is home. This is the best. This was the surprise of my life. (laughs) Here is Viola Davis as Detective Parker. She is fitting Kale with an ankle monitor. Looking at my notes are so funny. Here's where I start just typing in all caps. I was like, oh my God. (laughs) And she pretty much explains, first of all, there's an ankle monitor fee, which is about $12 a day, I think, which times three months comes out to be 
money. A sum of yeah. money. And so while Detective Parker is getting the credit card payment from Kale's mother, Julie, Kale notices the accompanying officer with Detective Parker has the same last name on his badge as his Spanish teacher, again, Gutierrez. And the officer tells Kale that the teacher he punched is his cousin. <laughs> uh oh. And basically, as if to say, like, I've got my eyes on you because you punched my cousin, which I also think points to this being a small town. So then before Detective Parker leaves, she warns Kale that some people under house arrest go a little loopy. So Kale should find constructive ways to spend his time. She also explains the rules of the ankle monitor. So when he's in bounds, it will blink green. Green means good. And if he ever steps outside of bounds, which we presume to be 100 yards, no. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's giving 100 yards. It's giving 100 yards. Um, (laughs) Like pretty much beyond his like front stoop, if he goes outside of that range, it's going to blink red. And if he exceeds 10 seconds, the cops will be sent to his address. So he knows that this is for real. He cannot go anywhere. So cut to him playing video games, but then access is denied. Mom has shut off the video games. We then find him eating spoonfuls of peanut butter dipped in chocolate, watching cheaters on TV, everybody staying home for a day at school. That sounds like a very 2007 thing to do. It's very, very relatable. We get like a tender moment where he wanders into his dad's office, looking at all of his things. He feels very remorseful, very sad still. And that's something that I don't think has been addressed necessarily through his sentencing is that Kale very much feels responsible for his father's death. That is something that he is obviously dealing with. He tries to download music from iTunes, but the password has been changed. This is very dated. I was like, oh my goodness. Like he, this, this man cannot just go on Spotify or YouTube. Like he has to be downloading shit on mm-hmm. iTunes. But tell me why I could never remember my iTunes password. I don't know. I use LimeWire. Oh! <laughs> of course I did. Then he's flipping through the channels and watches some bikini commercials until his mother comes in who informs him, yep, she canceled iTunes and Xbox, and now she's canceling maid service. She's like, look, Kale, I'm sorry you're a felon, but this is not a vacation. <laughs> look, I think Julie is hysterical, but I also have a little bit of beef with her character mm-hmm. because I want to know about your emotional journey, Julie. Right. Are you okay? No, I don't think she is. <laughs> she never is not this character. Right. Like, from the the first time we see her on the phone to when she's cutting the power cord to Kale's TV. Like she is mothering, which I understand. But at the same time, like there's never even like a look or even an expression that suggests this is hard for her too, I guess. It feels more like she's disciplining him normally as opposed to with the understanding of what just happened. And I'm not saying that she's, I love this scene with her. She's a badass. She's iconic. She lays down the law and she makes it clear what her expectations are for Kale. But I'm kind of concerned about her too. Like we see Kale avoiding his emotions, but Julie also doesn't seem like she is facing her emotions as well, if that makes sense. I think the closest thing we see is later in the movie when Kale is doing some fuck shit. Like she (laughs) does try to justify by being like, we've both been through a lot. He's been through a lot and like trying to give him grace, but like it's never to his face, which is exactly what Mm -hmm. I think you're saying is that there isn't that sense of comfort that Kale I think needs or that reassurance from his mother that like it wasn't your fault. Mm -hmm. Like all that kind of stuff. Like the movie isn't so much focused on Kale's grief. It's Mm -hmm. more so focused on what creates the conditions that Kale can't leave his house, which I think is a little complicated. So on that note, with no other fun ways to spend his time, Kale starts doing some of his chores, but in a really half-assed way. Of course, we know Shia LaBeouf from his role in Even Stevens. Part of this introduction to the movie really felt like just Even Stevens. You know, we see him barely making the dishwasher with the dish soap he puts in. There's dry dish soap everywhere. He's hardly doing anything he needs to do. 
But the next day, his life gets a whole lot more interesting when he sees some new neighbors moving in next door. But as he's observing this happen, the doorbell rings and he opens it to find a flaming brown bag. He promptly stomps out the fire to reveal that somebody has set a bag of dog shit on fire on his stoop that is now all over Kale's socked feet. <laughs> mm, so he sees two young junior high age boys, I would say, riding their bikes down the street, laughing, obviously the culprits of this crime. So he takes off running after them. But his ankle monitor starts going off and he realizes that he's in some deep shit physically and metaphorically. (laughs) So he runs back home right as he is met by Officer Gutierrez, who pins him to the grass and cuffs him. And we see the hottie from next door checking this out, not with trepidation, but with interest. And I'm Mm -hmm. like, I don't know. This begins (laughs) this begins an arc of like, what the fuck? I don't know. And granted, 2007 was a different time. There was a lot more things that piqued interest back then. And like, (laughs) high schoolers don't make great decisions. But like, God, Ashley, it's so hard to defend her sometimes. (laughs) So he gets a warning pretty much saying that this was your one time to fuck up. Next time you're actually getting brought in and you'll be violating the terms of your agreement. So don't fuck up again. So he spends the next day mapping out the parameters of his ankle monitor and goes to like make himself a mini gate with rope and gardening tools. Yeah, in a gnome. In a gnome, (laughs) like where he can't go beyond in his own front yard. He sees Hadi arrive home, so he goes inside to hide from her because he's really shy, but not shy enough to stop himself from watching her undress through her bedroom window. And she is conveniently in a bedroom that three of the four walls are entirely windows. People don't like blinds. And also, his house is a bit on a hill, so he looks down at her. True. So he really has a really good vantage point to like see within her window. She has her blinds down. But right as he's being a little bit of a peeping Tom... Ronnie knocks at the door. He is back from vacation and Kale shows Ronnie his reality TV. (laughs) The neighbors across the street where the husband's having an affair with the nanny, this man who mows his lawn twice a day, the shitbag kids who pranked him, and lastly, Hottie who is swimming in her pool, which of course Ronnie is very excited about. And Ronnie is even like, why aren't you making your move, man? But of course, Kale's ankle monitor is getting in the way. So later, Kale is trying to reach for the mail beyond the perimeter line. He has like an elevated front yard and the mailbox is built into like the wall in the front. So he's like laying on the grass and trying to reach around. He can't quite reach, but Ashley comes on the scene and she offers to help. As she chats with Kale about surface level things, her mother comes outside, sees her talking to Kale, and calls her back inside disapprovingly to the house. And Kale timed this out for when Ashley would be pulling into the driveway. Mm. So he very much scoped this out. Just in the same way that later that night, as he's watching the news with his mom about this girl who has been kidnapped, an alarm goes off on his phone. And this alarm tells him that it's time for Ashley to be doing yoga in a sports bra in her bedroom and he can watch through the binoculars. Fucking gross. (laughs) Look, Ashley, it's kind of impressive that she has such a regimented schedule. Yeah. But Kale turns off the TV where he has heard about a 1960s Ford Mustang that's on the loose, heads upstairs to spy on Ashley. I wrote who's doing vague stretches. I don't even... It doesn't (laughs) doesn't look like a routine. Yeah. (laughs) You need yoga with Adrian, you know? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. Oh my God, everyone needs yoga with Adrian. 
But he's spying when he sees Ashley's dad come into her room and yell at her about how disappointed he is in her. For what? We never learn. We never learn. But this is, you know, a little bit of a sad moment. And even Kale gets a look on his face like, oh, maybe I shouldn't have seen that. But after she gets reamed out, Ashley looks towards Kale's house, almost as if she can see him through the window. But Kale, thinking out loud, determines that it's too dark. Which, no, it's not. His lights are like literally on in his bedroom. If she was looking at his window, she would totally be able to see it. He's distracted when he sees lights of a car pulling into a driveway next to him. So he, curious, looks outside the window and watches the man who mows his lawn a lot unload trash into his garage and backing a Mustang into the garage. Uh And this Mustang sports the same dent that the missing Mustang also sports. Mm -hmm. And this is Robert Turner. Suddenly we get a Julie jump scare. Julie jump scare. (laughs) She's here to say goodnight. And that's pretty much the end of that until the next morning. Kale reads the paper that features an article about the girl's disappearance that he heard about on TV the night before. And at the same time, he hears his neighbor, Turner, cutting his lawn. So he's kind of curious. He's made the connection with the car. He's wondering if his neighbor could be the culprit. He sneaks outside and sort of like army crawls to the fence and peers in at his neighbor through the bottom of the fence. We get a little bit of a spooky moment where Turner starts talking to the fence saying like, oh, I see you, I see you. But then he pulls a bunny out of a trap. So he doesn't actually see Kale, but it's sowing these sinister vibes about this neighbor. Is he a threat? Is he not? At this time, I don't think we're sure. And Kale at this time invites Ronnie over and is filling him in about the matching Mustang theory, how there's been a string of disappearances of all redhead women mm-hmm. in the area that kind of match this woman that's been missing. Meanwhile, Kale is like half listening to Ronnie going off about this as he's staring at Ashley through the window, <laughs> as he does. Mm-hmm. And while they both ogle at her as she swims, Ronnie drops the binoculars, making a very loud banging noise, which calls Ashley's attention. And by the time they're courageous enough to look over into the backyard again, she's no longer there, but there's a knock at the door. It's Ashley. She's put on some clothes and she's arrived at their house to ask what they're up to. I don't know how to describe her. And then she's like, I got locked out. What are you guys doing? And just waltzes into that. It's like so manic pixie. Yes. What is that woman's name on TikTok who always does impressions? Delaney. Delaney. Yeah, Delaney Rowe, I think, is her name. She's great. I would love to see her do an (laughs) Ashley-inspired thing. She's like, are you spying on the neighbors, Kale? And it's like, because she like walks right up to his bedroom and it's like picking up his binoculars. Mm. And I'm like, dude, come the fuck on. Yeah, it's pretty wild. But they fill her in on the Robert Turner theory. And while she's spying on Robert Turner, she notices that the Mustang is now fixed. The fender is no longer dented. So then they go into surveillance mode. They're trying to figure out where these connections might be. After Ronnie passes out after eating too much pizza, (laughs) her and Kale are playfully flirting. She sets Kale's ringtone for Ronnie into this very funny, I'm so horny song. I don't know if it's an actual song. It is an actual song. But she's just manic pixieing her way through this interaction, drawing hearts on his ankle monitor, being like, so what are your issues, Kale? Like, shut the fuck up. (laughs) (laughs) I would not, like, this is the thing for me that's like, this is a 17-year-old How does she have the gall? How does she have the confidence? The only things that we really get out of her is that they moved from the city because her dad was consistently cheating on her mom. Yes. So they moved so that the dad could be on a shorter leash. And that means he wants to keep her on a shorter leash too, but she doesn't want to be on a leash. And it's Mm -mm. just like, I don't know. I want to like Ashley a lot. And granted, like I think of the time 
sure, maybe people acted like this, but this is also like what men wish women would have acted like at that time. I agree. It seems like Kale and Ashley are going to continue a deep conversation, right? When Ashley turns the tables and asks him about his issues, but their conversation is cut short when a green punch buggy, no punchbacks, pulls into Turner's driveway. Turner and some redheaded woman get out of the car and head inside to his house. So Ashley looks like through her binoculars at this woman before they key into his house and is able to name every club that she's been at based on the color of her wristbands. Girl, you're like 16 and you've been here a week. <laughs> well, maybe it's like they came from the city that she used oh, to that's live true. at. That's, that's so maybe point. she like, I don't know. Who knows? She's so cool. She knows the clubs they've been at. They spy as they head inside and watch as this redheaded woman seductively starts dancing in front of Turner. They even surf the radio channels to find what they might be listening to and settle on a song. This is kind of a funny moment, right? It seems like this is a lighthearted investigation at this point. We're just watching the next door neighbor and this woman dance, having a night for themselves. But then we see as Turner picks up a knife and looks as if he's about to stab the woman. There's some tension here, but then it turns out he just cuts off her dress's price tag. It's a false alarm. Then Ashley's mom calls. It's time for her to walk home. They almost kiss, but they don't. And then once Ashley leaves and heads home, she shuts the blinds to her bedroom. So she knows that she's being watched for sure. But later, he's still looking at Robert Turner's house when he sees the redhead running through the house, banging on windows and doors, trying to escape, but not being able to. He watches as his neighbor attacks her and restrains her from behind, and he's attempting to film her because, like I said, they were going to surveillance mode earlier, so they were hooking up his camcorder to his monitor somehow and accidentally takes a flash photograph instead. He hides and attempts to still film discreetly as the man clocks him, clocking him. Notice that there was somebody watching him, and I'm like, close the fucking blinds. Like, if you're gonna murder somebody, close the fucking blinds. If you wanna be a creep on somebody... Close the fucking blinds. <laughs> it's too much work, Shay. <laughs> it would simply make too much sense. It would, it would be too logical. So the next day, Kale is making breakfast when Turner shows up in the kitchen. Kale, of course, freaks out, but Julie accompanies him shortly after. And then she tells the story that she got a flat tire in the grocery store parking lot, which looking back, Turner probably did it. Helped her change her tire and then accompanied her back home, obviously because they're neighbors. And now he's in the house helping her unload groceries. And tries to ask Kale what happened and why he's on suspension. He's like, oh, well, I clocked my teacher. Turner's like, there's been plenty of teachers I just wanted to kill. So like, again, being super fucking creepy. (laughs) Yes. And continues to be creepy and charm the mom in front of Kale, who is growing increasingly displeased that the mom is falling for this older man's little games and shit like that. He's laying it on thick. So later, Ashley is back over... Kale gets her caught up on the night before, and she also informs him that she's having a party that night, which, of course, Kale can't go to because he's under house arrest. And Kale is obviously so jealous. And he's obviously has a reason to be upset, too, because while he's very rightly pointing out, like, this man was in my kitchen and he's charming my mom, Ashley is being the most unrealistic teenage girl ever written, being like, but your mom's hot. <laughs> and then trying to justify the woman running around being like, maybe some girls just like being chased around naked. I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? Well, she's not wrong. <laughs> but she's not wrong. She's not wrong. But you're, I mean, we know. Sorry. 
can't do it. <laughs> Maybe I'm just no fun. No, look, I'm not one of those women, but I'm, you know, sometimes <laughs> people, whether I am or I'm not, you know, sometimes people like to spice it up. I would trust it coming from like an informed older person, not this like 15, 16 year old girl. Like maybe yes. you girl like being chased around naked with a knife. Like shut the That's fuck up, That's the point. Ashley, how would you know that as well, Ashley? Oh my God. How I would you it. know? Mm. <laughs> and we are not being sex negative here. You can have sex whenever the fuck you want. It's just like coming from her. Ashley. Also, we saw the scene unfold and it was not giving kinky. kinky. Mm. It was not giving consensual. It was not giving role it play. It was giving something really bad. No safe word. No. So she's wrong. And she's not concerned. She even asks him, did you even notice my hair? Did you catch that line? Oh, yeah. Like when she first walked. And this is the thing about Ashley. It's like for all of her confidence, she's also coming across as really vapid, which I kind of resent. I'm kind of like, are you either going to be confident and secure or are you going to be? And again, she's 16, 17. Like, what do we expect from her? She's the young person finding her way. So she doesn't have to be consistent. But I really want to like her. And especially with this angle of this group of friends investigating who they think might be a serial killer. Like, I feel like there's so much room for her character to, I don't know, play a really pivotal role in that investigation. But I don't know. I have a hard time kind of feeling her out and getting a sense for her character. I'm back than- on her side immediately, though. Oh, yeah. Okay. Kale pulls this fucking shit. <laughs> because apparently, like, she met somebody somewhere at the mall, like this girl who's like, okay, I'll invite the entire school over to your party since you don't know anybody. And Kale goes, so you have the entire jock and bimbo population showing up? Are you really going through with this? I just didn't think you would conform so fast. <sighs> Such a jerk. And she does not play into that. She leaves... Cut to the party scene. Of course, Kale is spying as the party is unfolding. And once he sees some guy kiss Ashley, he gets pissed and grabs a speaker. I don't even think they kiss. They just hug. Oh, they don't even kiss. No. They're just enjoying themselves. Either way, it does not justify Kale going to grab his speaker and playing Loving You by Minnie Ripperton as loud as he possibly can. That song is like, loving you is easy because you're beautiful. Which is also like a really weird song to blast. I, I was think. just like, is he just blasting ballads and protests? Like I didn't understand. Yes, he was. <laughs> Precisely. So this makes everybody at the party immediately hate the party. <laughs> Ashley consents that. She barges into Kale's house. They fight over the iPod. And then she confronts Kale about how long he's been watching her. So again, coming out with the fact that she knows he's been looking this is the weirdest thing I've ever heard in a movie. Do you have this monologue? I don't have all of it. I don't have all of it. Please share with us the highlights because I can't believe this was a real thing. No, but Kale somehow uses and justifies his spying skills to charm her with all the details that he's noticed about her by spying on her with binoculars through her open bedroom window. He's like, you know, you pull your hair behind your ear in a certain way when you read. You actually read books of substance. You're not reading Seventeen magazine. You're reading real books with real thoughts. You look out the window. You can tell that you're looking at the world. But when I look out the window, I'm only looking at you. Dude. Bro. She eats it up. I said, call the police. What is this fucking (laughs) monologue? But no. He even knows what kinds of chips she eats. Just like so disturbing. But then they smooch. That's the creepiest but sweetest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> I wrote, I'm done. I want to go home. Like I was, <laughs> was not having fun anymore. It was so weird. Well, that, I, that's the kind of thing like I could see myself in 2007 as however old of a child I was being like, 
Wow. So he's charmed. So, he notices things. This is why context is important. Mm. Okay. When somebody <laughs> notices those things about you because they are non-consensually watching that happen through your window, I really think you should be taking stock <laughs> about what that means. But meanwhile, yes. Mr. Turner is up to no good. They start hearing noises coming from outside and they look to see him dragging some bags into his garage that have red smears on them. They decide to have Ashley keep eyes on him the next day by following him to a hardware store while Ronnie tries to break into his car to get his garage opener so they can get in the garage and see what he dragged inside the night before. I also wrote Ashley's wearing Hollister jeans. (laughs) which is important if you know what it's like in 2007 to have your hands on a pair of Hollister jeans. You are the coolest bitch on the block. I'm sorry. Also, Ronnie's (laughs) breaking into Robert's other car. Oh, it's not his blue No, because Ronnie is across the street, not at the store. Oh, you're right. Because Ashley has a moment where she gets distracted at the hardware store and then loses eyes on Turner. So then we're concerned, will Turner get back home and find Ronnie fucking around in his car? Because we don't know if he's already left the hardware store. And I will say this scene with Turner and Ashley is effective. I think this is like the scariest part of the movie. Ashley is trying to call Kale back while she's driving through this parking garage being like, I lost him, I lost him. And Robert steps into her path, making her stop the car. He walks around, gets inside of the car, reaches over, and shuts the ignition off. This is creepy. This is scary. Especially because we were anticipating him jump-scaring Ronnie. And not Ashley. Mm -mm. Meanwhile, Ronnie's trying to get the code to the garage door so they can sneak into the garage to see what's in the trash bags. So Robert says to Ashley, I know you've been following me and I should take it as a compliment that you'd be interested in such an older man and like touches her thigh and plays with her hair. I enjoy my privacy, but you're not the only one that's watching. Feel free to pass that info along and then starts her car and gets out again. There's a lot of like intentional pauses and dialogue and a lot of really aggressive body language coming off of Robert where you are afraid for Ashley a lot of the time. And especially Mm -hmm. because we know that Robert's victim at this point are young women. Yes. So we're like, oh my God, is Ashley about to get kidnapped? But it's a fake out. Like he gets out and pretty much says like, I know what you and your friends are doing. Mm -hmm. Fucking quit it. Yes. So back at the house, she, of course, informs Kale and Ronnie about what happened. And Kale is like, we need to call the police. But Ashley says no, because they're the ones who are watching Turner. But Kale actually speaks some facts here. He says, he scared the shit out of you. He's a grown man. So I appreciated that line from Kale because it's like, yes, he is a grown man and he can't be going around intimidating young women like that, which is, I think, why this is the turning point in the movie where we know that he is definitely the freaking killer. But Ashley leaves for her parents' anniversary dinner and asks Kale and Ronnie to just drop the spying. But of course, Kale doesn't. Kale calls Ronnie and leaves a message with new information about Turner's house that he dug up later that night. Apparently, he found old blueprints from an original plan of the house. But there's a new addition connecting the house to the garage. And in the message, Kale is like, what could be there? What does that mean? What are these parts of the house? But then Ronnie shows up at Kale's house, freaking out that he dropped his phone in Turner's car. So it's kind of like the uh uh-oh moment of, does Turner have Ronnie's phone? And if so, is he playing back that message and hearing more information about Kale's spying? So they enact a plan to use the garage opener that Ronnie did manage to get from the car that day, open the garage and see if Ronnie can get his phone back from inside the vehicle. But he's equipped with a camcorder that is live streaming to Kale's TV monitor. I don't know that that's possible in 2007, but it's happening. 
So Ronnie sneaks into the garage. He says, it smells like the corpse of a rotting hottie. <laughs> Love it. Great. Whatever that means. Whatever that means. <laughs> um, gets his phone and finds the bag. But as he's trying to detail what's in the bag, Ronnie is caught. He hears that there's somebody else in the garage with him. He escapes into the house. Obviously, Kale is freaking out and the feed ends up being cut. So Kale, obviously very afraid for his friend, grabs a baseball bat and runs toward the house, not paying attention to the angle monitor because he wants the cops to get there, screaming for Ronnie. The cops pull up almost immediately. Kale is arrested and is desperately trying to explain. Robert comes out of the house. Kale's calling him a murderer and a kidnapper. And thankfully, the cops do agree to check it out while Kale continues being arrested. But when they check out what's in the bag, it is just the rotting corpse of a deer that Robert hit with his car, which is why his fender was broken and he got it fixed because it's a collectible car. So every time that Kale tries to confront these folks with all of this evidence, Robert has an answer for it. And of course, he's like, well, my friend's in there, my friend's in there, and there's no Ronnie to be found. His mom's very upset. His mom's like, I have to go over there and make sure that he doesn't press charges because you broke into his fucking house and went over there with a fucking baseball bat. But his phone rings with the Ronnie ringtone and it's a text message saying, look at your TV. And on his TV are images of Ronnie laying motionless in the screen. But it's a prank. This was rude. It was rude. It was so rude. Ronnie plays a prank on Kale, obviously, but now we're back to being serious. Kale watches as his mom walks across the street to Turner's house and is also kind of watching the video of Ronnie's excursion to the garage playback on the TV. But this time, Kale notices something from that footage and plays it back, zooms in, sharpens the image, and sees that through, it looks like a grate, like a vent of some kind, there is the face of a dead woman wrapped in plastic. That was so scary to me. Yeah. That was really scary because this whole time, like, we haven't seen anybody die for sure. Like, we haven't seen anything graphic, but this is a moment. You know, this whole time, Turner and Julie had been having a conversation, but right as Kale makes that revelation, Turner is about to walk Julie outside, but he smashes her head into a wall and makes his way over to Kale's house. Ronnie is downstairs. And before Kale can call to him and alert him of what the fuck is going on, Turner breaks into the house and knocks Ronnie unconscious with a bat. Kale calls for Ronnie to come look at the tape just as Ronnie is attacked. And then Robert goes upstairs, attacks Kale. There's a chase through the house. There's a kitchen fight. Kale eventually makes it outside into the lawn and tries to get over the line again. But Robert denies some of that and pulls him back by the ankles. I thought that was pretty effective. Robert knocks Kale out and restrains him with duct tape, drags him back inside and discovers the footage that incriminates him. Kale wakes up and Robert goes on to say that the attention needs to stay on Kale, that he's going to paint a picture of him snapping. He killed Ronnie for flirting with Ashley. He slit his mom's throat for blaming him for killing his dad Mm. and forces Kale to start writing a confession letter saying, Dear Ashley, I killed Ronnie. But just as that is being facilitated, enter Ashley to the rescue. She rushes in and distracts Turner long enough for Kale to whack him and incapacitate him. But Kale and Ashley fight Turner then together. And through some kind of chase or turn of events, they find temporary refuge behind a closed door. But Turner ends up breaking in and forces them to jump out the window into Ashley's pool next door, which I kind of thought was cool. I'm glad the pool came back. Yes. They decide to split up. Ashley goes in one direction and Kale goes into Turner's house to find his mom. Where does Ashley go to get the cops? I think just to call for help. Yeah. Yeah. 
But meanwhile, wait, I love, I kind of love this scene. So of course, Ashley sends the call in and Gutierrez gets a call over his radio that's like, look, I know you're off duty, but we got a call from that Kale kid. He's causing problems. You call dibs. Do you want it? And he's like, yes. But he's going to take a sweet ass time getting there. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So cut back to Turner's house. Kale tries to crawl through that little space he saw in the video and finds a dead body. I think it's the OG news girl, like the one, the most recently missing girl. Very spooky. He ends up making it into the main house and calls for his mom and ends up finding a secret door. And he enters a room that looks like a coroner's lab. Yeah, I'm like, a fucking morgue? Yes. He finds another door, which leads into a series of tunnels underneath the house. Barbarian, barbarian, barbarian. Very much. And he ends up falling through the floor into a dirty pool of more dead and decomposing bodies. I was like, what is this underground swamp? I said it's giving poltergeist pool, which Mm. you didn't see poltergeist, but there's a lot of bodies in the pool. But you believe me. I know you trust me. Um, I'm like, how big is this man's basement? This is a never ending catacomb as above, so below type of moment where it's like, does this space ever end? We don't know. But Kale eventually ends up hearing muffled screaming and finds his mom tied up in the pit somewhere. Robert does a jump scare. There's a tussling. Mom gets involved. Eventually, Kale ends up stabbing Robert in the chest with hedge trimmers that he found. Did he have those the entire time? He grabbed them. They were used to set the boundary. And when he was running across the street to turn his house to save his mom, he grabbed them. Oh, okay, great. He falls into the body swamp. I guess he's dead. They walk out of the garage <laughs> hand in hand as backup arrives. Oh, Gutierrez got got too. Robert killed him at some point. Was he killed or just knocked unconscious? No, Robert fucking twists his neck, <gasps> like fucking kills that him. That sucks. There's I don't a- think he should have died. Hey, you know. <laughs> but it's just a movie, I tell myself as I cry. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. But it's okay, Viola Davis is back. Or Viola Davis is oh, back. Oh, yes. Thank goodness for Viola Davis. Cut to the next scene. She's taking off Kale's ankle monitor and saying that, by the way, the incarceration fee is waived. Thank you, Kale, for being an outstanding member of society and helping us catch a murderer. Wait, no, I think the joke is that it's not waived. She still oh, has really? to. Yeah, oh, I think wait, that's the joke. Oh, wait, oh my God. I thought the joke is that, like, wait, he still has to pay. And she's like, I'll make the rules. I think, oh, I think that's no. the joke. I just assumed that Viola Davis would take care of everything, but it's the system. What can I say? And then the movie closes with Kale, Ashley, and Ronnie exacting revenge on the dog poop prank boys from before. They had previously observed those boys watching pornography unbeknownst to their mother, and now they called the house and alerted the mother to it. And then Ashley and Kale make out while Ronnie films them. Great. Which is so weird. The end. The movie's done and so am I. I I don't want to be in 2007 anymore. All right, so I have some post-plot discussion things. Usually I like to find something from an article just to give some interesting insight, and then I have some questions that we can discuss. So there are some folks who talk about Disturbia as a non-thriller, even though a lot of people label it as a thriller. Some people don't. They say it's clear from the start of Kale's observations that he is not hallucinating Turner's murderous reality, but that he is correct in his instincts. So thus, we don't really ever see this blurring between reality and non-reality like we do in some other thriller type movies like this. One such person is Michael Jingold in his Vangoria review of the film. He writes, quote, Mostly Disturbia is content to be a straightforward, slickly made youth suspenser that's anchored by LaBeouf's very fine and sympathetic performance. 
Whether he's enacting Kale's contentious relationship with his mother, his burgeoning relationship with Ashley, or his suspicions about Mr. Turner. For quite some time, Disturbia ensues gratuitous shock tactics and actually allows us to get to know its principles, a refreshing change from the usual teen-oriented genre fair. Genuine concern is built up for Kale as he vainly tries to convince the authority figures around him of what's going on at Mr. Turner's place and enlists the help of Ashley and his goofball friend Ronnie in gathering evidence. What keeps Disturbia from working to its full potential is that there's never any doubt placed in Kale's or the audience's mind that Mr. Turner is in fact a callous murderer. A blood-splattering shot about halfway through confirms for the viewer what Kale is already sure he knows. And without any mystery left in the story, the rest is left to click through the inevitable developments. Mr. Turner realizes that Kale is onto him. Kale realizes that Mr. Turner realizes he's onto him. Mr. Turner threatens Kale's friends and then Kale himself, etc. Under the circumstances, Morse doesn't have to overstate or overplay his role's villainy. Morse is Turner's actor, by the way. He uses his physical size and a matter-of-factly menacing tone to suggest a man practiced enough at both murder and covering it up to be certain he'll be able to do it again, repeatedly, perhaps. So my first question is, do you think the film is different from a standard psychological thriller as sort of outlined above? Or do you think that it still fits the genre? Like, where do we fall as far as these film conventions go? I mean, I think I agree that it's a little too straightforward to be like psychological because Mm -hmm. there isn't any doubt. Like I would almost like if there was a third neighbor involved that was helping like breed suspicion Mm. or like acted as an ally and then that person ended up being who it was and Mr. Turner just looked bad. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So it does seem thriller-y because I find with most thrillers, the bad guy is fairly obvious, whereas psychological thrillers, because it borders that horror element, there always is that, like, do we trust our narrator? But we do trust Kale the entire time, even if he's a fucking creep. Like, we don't take his perspective out of context ever. So, I mean, it's certainly a thriller to me, and I know that it bordered horror, at least when we were growing up. Like I said, it was like a sleepover movie. But yeah, because there's no like fantastical elements or there's not like a prolonged sense of dread, I loosely call it slumber party horror, but maybe nothing beyond that. Yeah, you're right. There really isn't a prolonged sense of dread. And that kind of leads me to another question I had about grief. Like, what do you think this movie says about grief? Do you think it's related to this thriller slash non-thriller element? Or do you think that grief, even though it seems like this movie is going to address grief at the beginning, do you think it just falls short of addressing grief? I think of something like The Descent, right? Where it has a very similar accident in the beginning. There's a car accident or even Megan. It has a car accident Mm -hmm. in the beginning, and we can see throughout how this principal character is being impacted by that grief. We see some flashbacks, or we see some callback to that trauma informing that person's decisions. And while we get one shot of Shia LaBeouf looking at his dad's office very sad, it's not like he gets behind the wheel of a car and freezes up or something like that. Like I would have liked to see a little bit more attending to it. Like I said before, it's almost like they just needed a reason for him to be on house arrest. So they made this thing happen. But it could have been anything. Like I would have almost preferred that he was just like a truant kid that was just bad. And he was like just on house arrest. And because he already came with that reputation that would shroud his credibility. But like everyone's on his fucking side for punching that teacher. So like I don't, at least I am. Yeah. Like the audience (laughs) The movie frames it so that we are immediately on this character's side. Which they do effectively in that way. But I think if you're going to play with grief at all, make grief matter. And it didn't. 
Yeah, like bring the dad back. Like maybe Kale's character was always really shy mm-hmm. and he was forced to, I don't know, take advice that his father gave him about stepping out of his comfort zone. And talking or, to girls or something. Yeah. Like have him talk about that while fishing and then yeah. have it come to Ashley. Like, mm, see, we're not writers. Like, no, we're not writers. We're not writers. We're just English majors. So like, <laughs> pre-performer English majors. So yeah, I would have liked to see like a more thought out arc. I mean, obviously, Ashley and Julie are both pretty flat characters that are pretty much just there to move Shia LaBeouf along, which, okay, it's fine. It's his story. It can be his story. And we haven't even made the comparisons to Idle Hands yet, but it's very similar in that regard, too, right? Mm -hmm, Yeah. And we can talk about Idle Hands now. Like, when I think of the connections between this movie and Idle Hands, a lot of it has to do with Ashley's character reminding me of Molly, which is Jessica Alba's character in Idle Hands. And I will say with Idle Hands, part of the maddening aspect of that movie for me was knowing that Molly was always in danger, but she didn't realize it. Whereas in this film, I think Ashley has a little bit more control. Like she voluntarily decides to help with this stakeout thing, with the exception of the scene in the parking garage when Turner really seems like he might harm her. You know, she's usually out of harm's way. But in the beginning, I think with her dialogue, the voyeuristic shots of her swimming in the pool, the ogling over her from Ronnie and Kale's perspective, mirroring Anton and his friends jointly ogling over Molly. Like there is kind of that icky voyeuristic theme as well, which reminds me of Idle Hands, I think the most. Which does bring me to my last question, which is how does this movie use voyeurism? It rewards it. It does. It is like, wow, he's so observant and he helped catch this killer when it's placing Ashley very much into this objectifying space. And shouldn't she be so grateful because his observations is what saves her life or whatever the fuck, right? Like, Mm -hmm. it's very backwards. And granted, like, it's an interesting concept. Okay, you're forced to spend time in your own backyard and, you know, you never know who your next door neighbor is or you never know the dangers that present around you. Wow, isn't it so interesting what you see or what you could prevent when you're putting your phone down and taking in the moment? And granted, it feels very akin to something a 17-year-old in 2007 would find charming. (laughs) But it's harmful in the way that he not only discourages her wanting to expand her social circle beyond him and Ronnie. Mm Mm-hmm but that he should be rewarded for being observant when being observant is violating her privacy, whether she has blinds or not, right? So I don't know, like she's just there to look hot and believe every word he says. I do also think it's noteworthy that the characters in this film that do the most voyeuristic actions are both men, Mm -hmm. Kale and Turner, when of course he catches on and starts watching back. Ashley, of course, participates at times, but she ends up begging Kale to stop, which I think is really interesting. Like her recognizing that a boundary has been crossed, even though she recognizes her boundary first, it takes her realizing that somebody else's boundary has been crossed, which of course came with a nicely veiled threat that she clearly was frightened by, but she recognized the boundaries being crossed and asked for it to stop. Which I understand in one way he's trying to hunt down this killer. But on the other hand, he never recognizes crossing a boundary with Ashley. He never apologizes. He never says, I regret it. And you're right. He's rewarded for it. And it's also the idea that generally women have to be so much more vigilant to these things that are happening all the time. Like we would be the first person to clock a creepy neighbor. And again, that's not to say that nobody is perceptive or that people that aren't women can't be perceptive. 
but women are socialized to be like scanning for threats all the time coming from men. And the fact that Julie was just letting this dude that changed her tire in a parking lot in his house and accepting a date right in front of her son Mm -hmm. and being like, oh my God, isn't he so charming? Like it puts her in a very weird looking compromising position. And granted, like Ashley, I at least see has a better excuse because there's a very real threat to her continuing that behavior because she knows that she's in danger. Yes. So that stepping back is informed so that at least I support. Mm -hmm. But you're right. Like Julie, like what is she doing? Like she's just there to be a mom. And maybe add another level of fear. Like it is uncomfortable when we are afraid for Kale's mother because she does not suspect Turner like we know him to be. And so I think she is there a little bit as like a plot point just to help intensify the fear that something could happen to her. I mean, granted, the movie isn't here to make a statement. No. (laughs) It it is a dumb sleepover movie that has a lot of nostalgia, a killer ass soundtrack. It's cool to like turn on and turn your brain off too. Obviously, under the lens of this podcast, we don't want to seem like killjoys of like, it's not feminist enough. Like, that's (laughs) not like what the fuck this is. Well, it's just interesting to see something like Happy Death Day where we see Tree being so smart Mm -hmm. and knowing that Christopher Landon like went from writing somebody like Ashley and granted, Ashley's not the principal character in the story. Kale is Kale and Tree. Jesus fucking Christ. Can you name better people? Oh my gosh. (laughs) We love the leafy greens. We love the leafy greens. Yes, of course. And I don't want to be a killjoy. But again, like through a critical lens, I was especially interested in my question about voyeurism. And as we know, a lot of times themes in films, specifically horror films through our lens, are reflective of society at the time the film was created. And it is interesting to reflect on what we ate up in 2007 as a cinematic genius, as opposed to today when we might realize maybe some more questions we could be asking about what are these elements really portraying. And again, I think there are parts of this movie that bring up the connection to Idle Hands, which I talked about on this podcast as the first film that really fucked with me. And part of the reason that film fucked with me was because it made me so frustrated. And I think this film, and again, not to be a killjoy, also frustrated me. Again, seeing women in danger because they were denied information or weren't listening to information when women really do tend to listen to information, which I think you were alluding to before. Women have to be hypervigilant, especially with little things like blinds. <laughs> like that's one of the, I have a memory of like one time my mom came into my room and was like, I was walking the dog and your blinds were open and I could see you in your room at your desk. It's dark outside and light in there. People can see you. You shouldn't shut your blinds at night. And like, you best believe that I was shutting my blinds after that. So I think this movie might have stirred up a little bit for me, a little bit of frustration. But there are parts of this that did evoke a nostalgic joy, especially with the simplicity of the plot here. And of course, it is giving Scooby-Doo, a band of friends who are trying to unmask this villain. And I'm always a sucker for that kind of thing. But that's Disturbia. That is Disturbia. So, as always, if you want to follow with what we're up to, follow us on Instagram at The Horrors Podcast, and feel free to email us at thehorrorspodcast at gmail.com. And until next time, we're The Horrors. Bye. Bye. Bye.